Luke 23, and let's do the smart thing and have a word of prayer here. Uh, Father God, just as we get ready to get into this study, we pray that you would just help us to focus on you over these just next few minutes here as we study this out. Ask for your blessing. Just pray the Spirit would lead, guide, and direct, and as always, you teach and we listen, Lord, in your name. Amen. Luke 23, continuing our study here through the book of Luke. We're down to the final hours of the life of Christ. If you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, what we've studied the last two weeks was in Luke 23, the trials that Jesus went through, the trials that convicted him and led him to being put to death on the cross. Now, as we studied it out, those trials were a mockery. They were false. They were fake. But it fulfilled the purpose and plan of God of Jesus going to the cross for our sins. What we have here today is actually Christ on the cross and his death on the cross. So as we left off last week, they're being taking him now to be crucified. And that's where we pick it up here in verse 26 of Luke chapter 23. It says, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. This is kind of an interesting verse because it's just kind of thrown in there. This guy is Simon. Not really talked about before or after. He's just there. And he's mentioned in, in all the different Gospels accounts. Now, who was he? He was a Cyrenian, which means he was from the north coast of Africa. He could have been coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. He could have been an immigrant that moved over. But he was standing in the crowd. Jesus was struggling, carrying the cross, and they asked him to come help carry it. Now, Jesus was struggling. By this time, he had been beat ruthlessly. He'd lost a lot of blood. And the cross that he was carrying, it probably was the horizontal beam of the cross. And estimates are that it weighed about 100 pounds. So he's had this, he's carrying this, that's part of the horror of being crucified as you carry your own element of death to your death. They see Jesus struggling, they grab Simon, they say, hey, help him carry it. Now, once again, mentioned in many accounts of the Gospels, and in fact in the book of Mark it goes into more detail and it mentions his kids' names, which are Rufus and Alexander. Now the question comes up of why. Why is there just this quick little verse about this guy, and then we move on. I think it means a couple things here. First off, I think it means that we also have a responsibility when it comes to the cross of Jesus. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We don't have a responsibility in dying for our sins. No, Jesus took care of that on the cross. He took care of our sins. But we have a responsibility when it comes to carrying the message of the cross. That is why we are here. We are here to tell people about Jesus Christ. Anytime someone comes up and they start trying to find their purpose and meaning in life, the first thing I tell them is your purpose and meaning is to spread the gospel. Carry the cross of Christ. Ministry. Let people know. The cross that you carry, it may be unsafe friends and family members that you live with. It may be unsafe people that you go to school with, coworkers. I don't know. Maybe the cross you carry is a ministry responsibility that you have at church or at home. I don't know what your cross is, but you have a responsibility to carry that message of Jesus and all you say and all you do. Now, I think this also had a profound effect on his kids. Why else would it mention in the book of Mark that Rufus and Alexander were there? In fact, in the book of Romans, later on, the name Rufus is mentioned again. Is it the same one? We don't know for sure, but it looks like possibly it could be. I think this also shows us as parents the profound effect that we have on children. The profound effect that we have in raising up the next generation. I know for me, be it good, bad, and ugly, I see so much of myself and my kids. When we sit around the dining room table and we take turns praying, as the boys pray, they pray like I pray. That's kind of weird. Because that's what they've seen modeled. They, they do devotions like I do devotions. They, they do the spiritual walk like I do the spiritual walk. Now that's great. But they also do the fleshly walk like I do the fleshly walk. 
which shows the importance that we have as we model Christ. Now, your kids may be grown up. You may not have children. I don't know. You still have a spiritual impact on other people. You still have, as the Bible says, a sphere of influence that you influence other people for the Lord wherever you're at. And I think this shows us that we have that impact. We have a responsibility in helping carry the cross. Now, what about the next group of people? Verse 27, And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nurse." And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Jesus is saying, paraphrased, If you think this is bad, if you're mourning and lamenting this, He goes, wait till the full judgment comes. He refers to Himself as the green wood, the healthy wood, the wood that is alive. He goes, imagine the judgment that's going to come on the dead wood, the dry wood. And that judgment was coming. It could be a reference to in 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. It could be a judgment to the judgment that is coming later on. But he's basically saying, listen, judgment for sin is coming. And if they are doing this to me now, imagine what is going to happen later on. Which then sets us up for him being on the cross himself because of our sin. And let's see what that is. Verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. They take him to Calvary. Calvary literally means skull. Now, why is it called skull? Some people think the hill actually looked like a head, like a skull. Some people believe since that was the place, point of execution, that it was called skull because that's where people died. So Jesus went to Calvary, the skull, and that's where people died. Now... Two people, criminals, left hand, right hand. Now, we need to talk about this a little bit. We need to talk about this idea of being crucified. Here's the problem when we talk about being crucified. We usually do one or two extremes. One extreme is the horror extreme. The other extreme is we kind of just glance over it and not talk about it enough. I think there's a fine line there that needs to be talked about. Because this was an absolutely horrible event. This was the perfection of death, suffering, and pain that the Romans came up with. This idea of being crucified. Now, there's some debate. Some people believe that as you were crucified, your hands were above your head. Some people believe there was a cross beam where your hands were laid out. I think it probably was where your hands were laid out like we think of with the cross. Very simply put, what would happen is they would take the accused, and like I said, they carried the horizontal beam to their own death. As they would get there, they would take the cross, lay it out, and they would drive a nail through your two feet that were combined together at the bottom. And then what would happen is they would drive nails up into your hands. Now the debate comes up of do they put it through the palm or the wrist. Some people said if you put it through the palm, it would actually rip out. Or they think they put it through the wrist because there's actually a space there between the bones and the wrist. So you now have nails through your wrist, you have a nail through your feet, and now you're hung up on the cross. Now, there could have been a board underneath your feet. Now that board would have been there because for you to breathe effectively, you'd have to lift yourself up. To breathe. So you'd have to push off on that board. Now, if there wasn't a board there, you're actually pushing off on the nail that's through your feet to breathe. So every time you need to breathe, you have to go through pain. You have to lift yourself up on that cross through those nails to breathe. Now, you have to remember, too, with Christ, what he went through. He's been beaten ruthlessly. His back has been laid open. He was just scourged by Pilate last week. We talked about that. And that scourging would get to the point of actually exposing bone and muscle, etc. So as Jesus is lifting his back up to breathe, he's actually lifting himself up against this wood. Now, this wood is not stained, varnished, sanded wood. 
This is rough. And every time he breathes, that's what he has to do. If the person wasn't dying quick enough, the Romans would come and break your legs. So now as you're trying to lift yourself up to breathe, you're trying to lift yourself up with broken legs. That's an absolutely horrible thing. Horrible thing. And you would sit there, or excuse me, you would hang there, potentially for days, dying. Just dying. In fact, it was such an awful thing, our English word excruciating, when we talk about excruciating pain, comes from the word cross or crucified. That's where we get that English word. It's back from the Latin, cross, crucified, excruciating. And that's the type of pain that Jesus is going through. Because that's what he's doing when he's hanging on the cross. Now, we'll get to the spiritualness of this in a little bit. The man who knew no sin became sin for us. But put yourself in that position. As you are suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually, hanging on the cross, the first words of Christ are verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That's unbelievable. That's the first phrase he wants to say. is, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Here's the point. No matter how much you have been hurt by somebody, you can always choose to forgive them. You always can. You can always choose to forgive. People will come into counseling and they'll open up their hearts and they'll say something, the fact that this is what this person has done to wrong me, and they'll say, I can't forgive them. I usually interrupt them at that time and say, it's not that you can't, it's you choose not to. We choose not to forgive. Look what Christ went through, verse 34, and they divided his garments and cast lots. The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written all over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Jesus is taking this physical pain and suffering for sin he did not commit. And as this is going on, people, verse 35, are looking at him, sneering him, verse 36. The soldiers are mocking him. There's this mocking sign hanging over his head, verse 38. This is the king of the Jews. And he still says, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. See, here's the thing. At this point, there's usually somebody saying, you don't know what they did to me. I don't know what they did to you, but I know what we did to Jesus. And Jesus still said, Father, forgive them. They know what they do. You may have somebody in your life that has just completely taken everything from you. Completely. They have just stripped you bare emotionally, spiritually, physically. Did you catch verse 34, the second half? And they divided his garments and cast lots. As Jesus is hanging on the cross dying, the only physical possessions he has, they're taking from him. They're taking everything from Christ. They have taken all of his possessions. They're mocking him, sneering at him. They are just, it's this constant berating. And he still says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Think about that. One of my favorite verses on forgiveness deals with this idea that if Christ forgave us, we can forgive others. You don't need to turn there, but if you're taking notes, just write it down. It's Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Listen to the last half of that verse. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So when I see somebody wanting to hold on to unforgiveness, I don't understand that. If Christ so re- easily forgave you, why would you not want to forgive others? See, that word forgive is an interesting word. That word forgive means to let go, to send it away. 
Let go and send it away. It means I choose not to carry the pain, the hurt of what that person did to me. I let it go. I send it away. Too often when it comes to forgiveness, we feel like that person has to come and say, I'm sorry, and then I forgive them. No, you can forgive the person even if they never told you that they're sorry. If you're sitting here today waiting for someone to come tell you that they're sorry, and then you're going to forgive them, that person may never come say that. And you're going to harbor that unforgiveness for the rest of your life? Have you ever seen what unforgiveness does to somebody? It makes them a bitter, bitter person. It makes them just a spiritually ugly person that you don't want to be around them. Because they're holding on to this hurt and this pain of what people have done to them weeks, months, years, decades ago. And I will never forgive them. Why? If you've tasted the forgiveness of Christ... Why not let it go? Why would you want to carry that with you? The word forgive, to send away, to let go. I don't want to carry that. Here's the problem with harboring unforgiveness. It feels pretty good for a little bit. Have you ever felt that? That you've been wronged, you've been hurt, and you're angry? And you're like, I'm angry. I'm justified in this. It feels good. And you can walk around in a little bit with this little chip on your shoulder. Then after a while, the Spirit starts speaking to your heart, saying, let it go. And you're like, I don't want to let it go. This feels good. And then what happens is righteous anger becomes sinful, evil anger. I've been wronged. Yes, you've been wronged. But now, you being wronged now becomes this place of bitterness in your soul that eats you up. Forgive. If you're holding on to unforgiveness towards somebody, what they've said, done, what have you about you, the best thing you can do is forgive them. By forgiving them, it does not make it right what they did. But you are letting go of it, saying, I no longer want to carry around this ugliness in me. Just as Christ forgave, I want to forgive. They sneered Christ, they mocked Christ, they took everything from Christ. People have done that to you. Lord, I forgive. And I don't want to hold that on anymore in any way whatsoever. What else do we see about Jesus here? Verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Our first point was that... You can never be so hurt that you can't forgive because Jesus, in the time of immense pain and suffering, forgave. Point number two, you can never be so hurt that you can't minister to people. See, Jesus is in the worst place you can be in, and he's still in verse 43, leading people to salvation. Can you imagine how much different the Bible would have been in verse 42? Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you came into your kingdom. Verse 43, and Jesus said to him, not now. Do you not see what I'm going through? We do that. I've, I've done it myself. I've seen other people do it. Lord, not now. I am not in any place or position to go minister to anybody. This is an awful, horrible time in my life right now. I can barely get myself up and going. And now you want me to go read and pray and serve and study? Not now, Lord. Let me work through this and then I'll come back. No. Jesus shows us that on the cross... No matter what you're going through, there's still an opportunity to minister to other people. So often people come in battling discouragement, battling depression, what have you. And after we talk for a while, one of the things I always ask them is, where are you serving? What are you doing for the Lord? And they say, well, this was not a good season for me. I know, that's why it's a good opportunity to serve. Because as you serve, you don't think about yourself, you think about others. 
Jesus on the cross shows us that no matter what we're going through, there's still an opportunity to minister to other people. We've used this example many times before. It's out of a passage in the book of Colossians where we put on Christ. There are times where I physically, emotionally, or spiritually don't feel like serving the Lord. I don't. But when an opportunity arrives, James is not capable of doing it. So I put on Christ. I put on Jesus and say, fine, Lord, I will serve you through the power and strength you give me because I'm not capable of doing this. I can't, Lord. But Jesus through me can. So if you're the type of person that when the going gets tough, you just shut down spiritually, look to the cross. Look how Jesus, in the time of immense emotional, spiritual, and physical pain, still served, still ministered. I have come to this conclusion in my own walk with the Lord, that those times where I say I can't, and I still go ahead and do it through the Lord, are some of the greatest times of blessing I've ever seen in ministry. Because I start realizing it's nothing about me. It's about Him. What else do we see in this passage? Two thieves. One to the left, one to the right, one gets saved, one doesn't. They saw the exact same thing. They heard the exact same gospel message. It shows me that some hearts are ready to receive the Lord and some hearts aren't. That always used to bug me. When I first got saved and I got a chance to share the Lord with people, the first few people I shared with were always so open and ready for it. Then I met somebody who I shared with them, explained the gospel to them, and they just came out and said, I'm not interested. I had no idea what to say or do. Why would someone not be interested? And I walked away from that defeated. What did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? The thief on the cross, he got it. The other thief on the cross, he didn't want it. I tell you, you're going to get a chance to share the Lord with people. Some are going to be open and receptive. Some aren't. Same situations, same thing. Some are ready, some aren't. What do we see here about the thief on the cross? We see the simplicity of salvation. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's in the book of Corinthians, where it just talks about the simplicity of Jesus. Think about how simple salvation is. Think about that for a second. How simple salvation is. This idea of to be saved and to know Christ is just to know Jesus. How simple is that? The gospel message is this. There is a heaven and there is a hell. You will live on forever in either heaven or hell. We deserve hell because of the sins that we have committed, the sins we have done. Jesus came down, paid for my sins on the cross, and said, I will pay this debt that James can't pay. And as I pay this debt, James then has access to heaven through me. So now I believe in what Jesus did. I accept his death on the cross for me. And I have now entrance into heaven. The simplicity of the gospel. Now, I'm not trying to pick. But what happens is you see people adding to the gospel of Christ. How do you get saved? Well, you believe in Jesus and do this. You believe in Jesus and you do that. I'm not trying to step on toes, but there are certain denominations. If you'd go up to them and say, how do I enter into heaven through your denomination? That's great. You do Jesus and you fulfill these obligations. That's not the simplicity of Christ. The simplicity of Christ is you want to be saved, the thief on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Think about this. When Philip had a chance to speak to the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, this is how he explained salvation. The Ethiopian asked about being baptized. Philip's response, If you believe with all your heart, you may. This is the Ethiopian's response. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
That's salvation. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I love the simplicity of Christ. I absolutely love that if someone wants to be saved, it's believing on Christ and what he did on the cross. The thief on the cross shows us how simple salvation can be when you just take it for what it is. Jesus died for your sins. And I love that. So what do we see here in Christ? We see Christ forgiving when it's difficult. We see Christ ministering where it's difficult. And what is the result of this? Verse 44, now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. We see this darkness. Sixth hour, ninth hour would be from noon to three. Obviously, noon to three, there's a reason why it got dark during that time. Generally, between noon to three, it's not dark. This shows us, this shows us here, this spiritual darkness that was over Christ in verse 44 of Luke 23. This darkness. What was that darkness? Most people believe that darkness was when Jesus took the sins of the world. He was suffering. It's at this time, to the other gospel accounts, that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Christ was taking that sin on him. Darkness. He was separated from God the Father. Sin separated him from God the Father. and He was now carrying the world's sins on his shoulders, taking that punishment. We downplay how ugly sin is. We do that a lot. We snap at our kids, we snap at our wife, and we say, Lord, sorry. And we're forgiven. I don't want to downplay forgiveness. But do you realize when we commit a sin, the ugliness that we just did? Man, oh man. Sin is ugly. When I commit a sin, I, I, I am saying to God, I'm rejecting your ways and I'm walking in mine. When I commit a sin, I'm basically saying I deserve hell. And we just so often let sin just be simple. I snap at somebody, Lord, sorry. Oh, I I had a lustful thought. Sorry about that. Oh, I thought words I shouldn't have. Oh, sorry about that. Once again, God forgives. I love it. But do we realize how ugly sin is? It's an ugly, ugly thing. And to think that we choose to walk in sin. We choose to walk in sin. This darkness from noon to three is a picture of what sin is. Some of you got saved later in life and you walked in sin for decades. And at the time of walking in darkness, you didn't even think it was that big a deal. There may be people here this morning that are walking in darkness right now and you really don't think it's all that big a deal. Because we're used to darkness. That's what we're used to. We don't realize what sin is. We don't realize the consequences of sin. When I choose to walk in sin and not walk in Christ, I'm choosing to say, I can't pay for this debt myself, and I deserve hell. And so when I commit a sin, I realize what I did. I put Christ on the cross. The ugliness of it. And you get a small glimpse of this in verse 44 for those three hours of darkness. That's the darkness of sin to the point of where Jesus says, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Because sin separates you from the Lord. And we've got to be careful about that. That's the beauty of forgiveness, because the next verse is verse 45. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. This veil is huge. This veil separated the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, from the rest of the temple. This veil, if I remember correctly, I studied this out one time, I think this veil was about a foot to a foot and a half wide, if I remember correctly. And somebody correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember, I think it was made out of woven goat's hair for some reason. we got a couple goats at home, and I'm telling you right now, they're not warm and fluffy. So, this is a solid veil. This is not some little sheet. 
This is a veil that is torn. And one other gospel account says it was torn from the top to the bottom. So for this thing to break and to rip, this is not an accident. This is a God thing. And this veil being torn shows access to God. Because back during the Old Testament, one day of year, day of atonement, one man got to have access to God. They would get to go behind the curtain, behind the veil, go into where the Ark of the Covenant was, and they would do a sacrifice there for the Lord. And that one sacrifice covered the sins of Israel for the whole year. So Old Testament, one day a year, one man had access to God. The veil being torn from top to bottom shows that God now has given us access to Him whenever we want. Hebrews says in chapter 4, we can boldly go to the throne of grace. Think about that. Old Testament, I'm struggling, I sin. My relationship to God are animals being sacrificed. Nowadays, I sin. I immediately, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm struggling with something. Lord, I'm nervous about this. I'm worked up. I'm physically feeling ill. Lord, I just ask for your healing hand to be upon me. One of my loved ones is suffering. Lord, I come to you now in the name of Jesus and I pray for them. I have complete access anytime I want. Anytime I want. The Bible says I cast my cares upon him because he cares for you. The veil has been torn. I can go in any time I want and talk to God. Complete access. Can you go with me to 1 Timothy, please, chapter 2? 1 Timothy 2. I think sometimes we take for granted this access we have to God. To pray to Him, to go to Him, to say, Lord, I need you. The Holy Spirit, once you are born again and saved, the Holy Spirit chooses to live inside of you. You now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing thing. So with that being said, why do we carry these burdens? Why do we? Just the other night, our uh, fourth son, Layden, came out. And he had a little ow, owie on his elbow there. And he came out and said, Dad, will you pray for me? And my first thought was, you're supposed to be in bed. Go back to bed. Legalism. My next thought was, how cool is that? I don't know who's raising these kids, but they're amazing parents. That the kid would come out and said, will you pray for me? That access, and that's the way the boys are. This idea of, let's just take it right to the Lord. I love that. Boy, I wish we would do that more as adults. This is instead what we do. Oh, I got a big situation going on. I need to think about what I should do. Why don't you pray about it? Oh, I'll pray about it. Oh, yeah, but I get to think about this first. How silly is that? You have complete access to God. The veil has been torn. You can go right into the presence of God anytime you want, boldly. I say, Lord, I need wisdom. I need guidance. I remember years ago, it was about, actually, it was probably 1994. It was 1994. There was a group of us from church that went to a Billy Graham crusade over in Cleveland. We wanted to go see Billy Graham, so we went to the Billy Graham crusade. If I remember correctly, the thing started at like 6.30, 7 o'clock. Doors opened up at 5 or whatever it was. We were so excited, we got there at like 1.30 in the afternoon. So we show up, and we're there hours early. Everything's locked. I mean, you can't get in. And then we saw that there was an emergency exit door open. So we went in through the emergency exit door. And so we got a chance to go in there and watch them do the sound checks, watch them set everything up. We had complete access to anything we wanted and no one thought anything about it because no one's supposed to be in there but the people that were supposed to be in there and why is that is because we walked in through the emergency exit and had that access now don't take this message the wrong way saying that there's a back door to heaven that's not what i'm saying (laughs) what i'm saying is it's amazing when you can get in and have that access wow lord i get to talk to god I don't know what you're struggling with this week. I don't know what burdens you're carrying or what decisions you have to make. I cannot encourage you enough. 
Talk to God on a regular basis about it. Boldly go to the throne of grace. The reason the veil was torn is so that you can go to him. 1 Timothy shows this. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Four little verses explains everything. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. God is our Savior. That's a good thing. That's what verse 3 is telling me. Verse 4, who desires all men to be saved. Don't carry around this thought that God gets some type of joyful glee out of seeing a sinner go to hell. I don't know where that thought comes from. That's presented sometimes by the world, but also by Christians. That there's this joy in heaven when a sinner dies and gets the wrath of their sin. No. Ezekiel says that God wishes that nobody would die and taste that wrath of sin. It says right here in verse 4, He desires all men to be saved. That's the heart of the Lord. Too often we look at God as the angry guy that lives upstairs and just pounds on the floor telling us to be quiet. He loves us. He desires all men to be saved. So what else do we see from this? Verse 5, the way He fixes this is there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He made it simple. He made it simple. It's Jesus. I heard of the joke one time that said, as Christians, we're so egotistical, thinking that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. Then I heard the pastor say that he disagrees with that. He thinks there's many paths to get to heaven as long as they go through Jesus. And isn't that the truth? You can get to heaven many different ways, but eventually you're going to have to go through Christ. You may get to heaven through the teaching of a church. You may get to heaven through the witness of a friend. You may get to heaven through a program on television. You're going to take a different path to get there, but eventually you're going to get through Christ. Because he's the only mediator between God and men. Make sure you understand that. There is one path, one way, and that's it. That's the simplicity of Christ. As that Jesus said, I will take all of this on, and it's your one-stop place. And he did that. And what did he do? Verse 6, he gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He says, I'll be the ransom for everybody. I will pay the cost of sins for everybody. That's exactly what he did. So when that veil was torn in the temple in verse 45, it shows complete access to the Holy of Holies, God's presence itself, that we can now go in boldly any time we want. Jump back to Luke 23. Let's finish this up. Verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus realized he had paid the price. He took care of it. And John 19, he says, it is finished. Three simple words. It is finished. I had a friend tell me one time, it says, it is finished, not to be continued. It's over and done. See, if it was to be continued, we'd still be working this process out. It's finished. See, whatever you bring towards me, it's finished. Salvation, taken care of by Christ. The struggles you have with sin, taken care of by Christ. The worry and fear and anxiety we live in this world, it is finished, taken care of by Christ. The cross finished everything. 
We have this little saying that we use sometimes about the crux of the matter. That word crux is Latin for cross. It's the cross is what it's saying. It's all about the cross. So when Jesus said, it is finished, it's done. It's over. Sin has been defeated. We can walk in victory. There's some great worship songs this morning. Victory in Jesus. Next week, as we get to the tomb and is risen, we sang the hymn this morning, Because He Lives. What an amazing song. It's finished. See, too often I look at my spiritual life as I have to do something. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Amen. Thank you. But I got to do something. No, it's finished. I don't have to carry this burden of saving myself, saving other people. I can walk in the finished work of Christ and realize that. I'm not trying to pick. I'm not trying to step on toes. But once again, there's certain groups, churches, denominations that explain salvation as almost this deal that you do with Christ. Christ took care of a good chunk of it on the cross. But now you have responsibilities to make sure that you get in. Simplicity of Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus, it is finished. What a wonderful thing that is. To know that it's done and that it's over. He completed the work. Last thing we're going to do. Can you go to Psalm 31, please? Psalm 31. This phrase in verse 46 of, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is actually, he's quoting Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is what we're going to end up with. We're just going to read the first five verses here of Psalm 31, and we're done. First five verses of Psalm 31 has everything we need to know about it being finished. Verse 1 of Psalm 31, it says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Verse 5, Jesus said that from the cross. But let's go back and look at this for a second. Knowing that Christ said it is finished, we can learn from this. The key to this is verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. These passages only work if you commit your life to the Lord. So as you commit your life to the Lord, what do we get out of this? Verse 1. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your day of righteousness. And Lord, I put my trust in you. If you came in this morning and you are struggling with something, when you put your life in Christ, you can trust that he's going to deliver you out of it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You don't have to carry the burdens of the world on your shoulders. I see too many Christians carrying burdens on their shoulders where I'm like, why would you carry that? Give that to the Lord. Verse 1 says you trust in him and he takes care of you. He hears you. He cares. Look at verse 2. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. He wants to communicate with you. Layden, our, our youngest son, who's coming up to 18 months old here, his new thing now is when he wants to play, he'll sit on the floor and he'll just tap the floor. That's my cue to sit on the floor with him. Come down to his level. I look at verse 2. Bow down your ear to me. See, God is so big. And we're such tiny futile people. See, I grab the pant leg of the Lord saying, God, I need your help. What does he do? He bows down his ear to me. It's, it's like seeing that adult man get down on one knee to talk to that toddler. He comes down to our level. 
That's exactly what Jesus did. For the 33 years that he lived on this earth, he came down to our level and said, I want to deal with you. I want to take care of this. Bow down your ear to me. And for you that are struggling this morning, thinking, okay, I'm praying and I don't hear an answer, look at verse 2. Deliver me speedily. The Lord hears. He's not ignoring you. He's your rock of refuge. He's your fortress of defense. Verse 3 reiterates that. You are my rock and my fortress. He cares. He will see you through this. He will guide you through it. For those that came in this morning and you need wisdom and guidance, look at the end of verse 3. Lead me and guide me. I see too many people in the world today trying to make decisions on their own. Why would we not go to the creator of the universe that the veil has been opened up? We can come to them and say, Lord, lead me, guide me. You show me what you want me to do. Why? Verse 4. There's a lot of nets out there. There's nets that are trying to pull me down. And in my infinite wisdom, I see a net and I say, hey, let me just jump right in this. Lord, guide me, lead me, keep me on the right path. You are my strength, which then takes us back to verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. When I commit myself to the Lord, I put my trust in Him. He listens to me. He bows down to my level to talk to me. He's my rock, my fortress, my shield, my strength. He leads me. He guides me. This is the result of salvation. Why would we not want that? So when I see, or hear, I should say, Christ say on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. I can walk in victory. I can walk in His strength. And I realize, wow, Lord, it's done. You won this battle for me, and now I can walk in you. And what a praise that is. And just think now. Christ, as we end our study, has passed. But just next week, we get to see the tomb being empty. And what a glorious resurrection that is. Marvin Kelly, if you can come forward here for the final song. Psalm 31. Verses 1 through 5. I don't know what you're facing this week, but I'll tell you this. Those verses will be an encouragement to you. If not an encouragement to you, you will run into somebody this week that is struggling, and I encourage you, give them Psalm 31, 1 through 5. Remember, out there in the back, Operation Christmas Child to my left, we have the ministry table back there, areas to serve. We encourage you to pray over that. Thanksgiving potluck to my right. Prayerfully consider getting involved with some of these things. So without much further ado, we'll get over to Marvin Callie for the final song and let you go with the word of prayer.